0: Welcome to the Hillside Community Church Podcast. Wherever you're at in your faith,
1: we hope this episode encourages you. If you enjoy the listen, let your friends know. and We'll catch you next time. Well, at the very center of the Christian faith, the gospel, is the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, these are radical and incredible claims whether you lived in the first century or or today. So if you doubt the resurrection, you're in good company in any era. In fact, doubt was the path that all of the disciples had to take in order to find the truth. They struggled to come to Easter faith and understanding. They moved from doubt to belief. I read a A fairly new book came out uh, about the resurrection. It's called Raised. And the author says this about doubt. He says, doubt well, and you can walk away from skepticism, cynicism, or blind faith into intellectual security and perceptive belief and deeper commitment. And so today we're going to look at Thomas. No doubt the most famous doubter and see if he can help us doubt well, which I think at least means don't straight up be dismissive. Now, some doubts can be quite debilitating. They stop you in your spiritual tracks, and it's very possible that you, you haven't made any spiritual progress since last year at this time. Uh, you're not any further along in your journey you have, enough, you have enough to attend a holiday service, but not enough to alter your life. And I think Thomas can help us. Thomas will help us do three things today. Number one, get serious about seeking and about working through our doubts. That's the first thing. Then the second thing he'll show us, what does it look like to come to belief? What is coming to believe? faith look like and then how do you know if you believe because you might say "Ah, well I, I I mean I get this you might rationally get it but maybe but you don't really know what it means to believe so I think Thomas can help us with all three of those now let's start right in why should I get serious about seeking even if I have doubts well, let's look at our text. John 20 is a fantastic text. Jesus appears to a number of the disciples. as a number of experience. Thomas is last, and for good reason. Here's what happens. He appears to the group of the disciples first, okay, before Thomas. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the disciples had gathered together and locked the doors of the place because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders, so Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and then the disciples rejoiced that they had saw the Lord. Now, just stop there. We'll, look at, we'll, we'll understand that in a minute, but notice what he says. Here's the key to where we're headed now. Now, Thomas, called Didymus, was one of the 12. He was not there when Jesus came. So all of a sudden, you've got sort of an issue in the text, and there's a guy, and he's that guy. I mean, like, you're the guy that wasn't there when Jesus showed up. Now, he's that guy throughout this whole text. Nobody wants to be that guy, okay? But he is that guy, and there's no explanation for why he didn't show up, but it turns out to be the best news ever that he wasn't there because Jesus is going to do a repeat performance. It's going to be an exact replica of what he did with the disciples. It's as if Jesus is kind of saying, the disciples didn't get it, let me do this again. So Thomas uh, is actually what one writer called him, a dramatic gift to all modern seekers and skeptics, because he forms a narrative bridge so Jesus appears to the disciples, but they don't get it the way Thomas is about to get it. And so Thomas becomes the, the, the sort of the single individual personal focus of, this is what I meant to happen when Jesus appears. So Jesus is like, well, we need to look at Thomas to help you guys. But then Thomas becomes the bridge to everyone who wasn't there Easter morning. And that includes you and me. So Thomas bridges both groups so he's right in the center. Now, Thomas gets a bad rap because there's no other text that support Thomas being a doubter. He was inquisitive, but he was faithful to God. He would have died for Christ. So the truth is, any of us in Thomas' shoes would have been the exact same way. We would have doubted the exact same way. Any one of the disciples... Hadn't been there, they would have done just exactly what Thomas did. So, no need to berate him, and I don't think Jesus ever does. Now, so, but Thomas does have some issues, and they're similar to ours. So notice what happens. So the other disciples come to him, and they say, we've seen the Lord, and here's what he says. What any one of us would have said. Unless I see the wounds from the nails in his hands, put my finger into the wounds from the nails, and put my hand into his side where the spear went in, I'll never believe it. Now, he uses a double negative, which in English we know creates a positive. But in Greek, it doesn't. It essentially says this. You'll never convince me. That's where Thomas is at. So Thomas is not just skeptical. He's a little snarky. He's a little defiant and a little demanding. Unless I get. So, he's not so much, I think we started, snotty Thomas is better than doubting Thomas. He's a little snotty. Okay? Now, here's the beautiful thing. (laughs) I just love this. I love this verse. Eight days later, and we're talking about, now for uh, eight days really means seven days because it would have been the next Sunday. So he rose on Sunday. This would have been seven days. In the Jewish calendar, they would have counted Sunday, so that's why it's eight. But that's really seven, seven days later. We're talking about the next Sunday. A whole week goes by, and they're again, look, again together in the house, This time, here's the unique thing, Thomas is with them, but everything else is the same. They're in the house, doors are locked because they're afraid, and Jesus comes and says the exact same thing, we got repeat performance. Jesus is like, we need to do this again. Let's try this again. And with Thomas in the room, something unique happens. So you first sort of wonder, why wasn't Thomas there last week? There's no explanation for it. But then you could also kind of ask, why is he there this week? Anybody as snotty and defiant and skeptical and cynical as he was, you would say, why would you even show up with that attitude, right? Wouldn't you at least go, man, I can't believe Thomas showed up a week later. Whole week goes by. But it's seven days, and it's seven days later. See, Thomas represents the guy who's distant from Easter. He wasn't there. He represents each one of us. And it's a week later, and I I just thought to myself, do you know one of the least attended days of the year at church is the week after Easter? And I'm like, good for you, Thomas. You showed up a week after Easter. I just think that's fantastic. Hey, listen, he showed up even with all his doubts and skepticism, he showed up. I think most people are like, Look, I had to dress up. I had, to, I had extended time with extended family. I had to eat stuff I don't normally eat. Right? I need a year to recover. So I'll see you next Easter. I think that's what people do. And I get it. But here's the beautiful thing. Thomas is at least in the room. With all his snarkiness, he's at least in the room. He brought his doubts to the room. And I love that. Despite... His misunderstandings, looking out of the corner of his eye of his buddies. Who knows what kind of tension existed between Thomas and his, and his buddies, you know, to have this kind of attitude toward what they told him, you know? And I'd say, why was Thomas in the room a week after Easter? I'd like to suggest two things to you. I'd like to suggest, first of all, that life demands it. Life demands it. So Thomas is like us. He's skeptical and doubtful, but he's also restless. He's restless. Let me tell you what I mean by that. He lives with the uneasy sense that there's more to life. Have you lived long enough yet to know the wonders of the height of life, like the incredible moments of life, and the horrors of the low points? In each one of those points, it doesn't matter what you believe about reality, you just know that there's got to be more. There's got to be more. And it makes you a little restless in those moments. Well, that's exactly how, Thomas. In fact, one writer described it as there are moments in your life, whether highs or lows, that sort of tear a hole in, your, in life. They tear a hole in it so that you have to look outside of it to see if you can find meaning for whatever's going on inside it. These are the kind of moments that do it. And you can try your best to live as though life is meaningless and doesn't matter. I was reading an author who described a man who said this, no matter how hard I tried to live as though life was absurd and meaningless, what I kept coming up against again and again was meaning. I simply couldn't live as though life had no meaning. If you're at a funeral, or if you experience great joy, you know what drove C.S. Lewis through his doubts to come to faith, you know what drove him to investigate and come to faith? It was joy. You ever read his book, Surprised by Joy? That's what it means. Joy overtook him in such a way that he goes, there's gotta be an explanation for this joy that I experience on the inside. And that's what drove him through his doubts. G.K. Chesterton is another character that I love great. Very smart. In fact, C.S. Lewis read Chesterton. Chesterton was a guy Who woke up one morning so grateful for life that he didn't know who to thank? And it made him pursue the faith. And then my favorite poet, W.H. Auden, he wanted to condemn evil. And he didn't think you can condemn evil to the degree it needed to be condemned if you acted like life was meaningless and it didn't matter, and so he pursued faith through his doubts, and so what I'm saying is at some point, something happens, either a high or a low, where you don't take life for granted anymore, and you push through your doubts, to doubt well would mean question your doubts. And the reason you would do that, the reason you'd show up into that room with all your snarkiness and snottiness and doubts is because you're restless and you know there's got to be more and you're willing to look hard at it all. That's what Thomas did. Because it's worth it. When you hear what, what's, what you're about to hear that's being offered, you're like, who wouldn't at least investigate that? Some of you have actually hunted for a used car with more gusto than you have the resurrection. I encountered a guy a couple, uh, not long ago, at a formal event. You may not know this about me, but I'm a shoe guy. I like shoes. My grandfather was a shoe guy, and he made me a shoe guy. And so I take really good care of my shoes, and uh, I'm picky about my shoes, Well anyway, I come across this guy who's got on a pair of shoes that I've been eyeing for a long time. Haven't bought them, they're a little pricey, but I like them. And I see him wearing them. And I go up to him and I say, Hey, the shoes, the shoes. And this guy says, Oh yeah, the shoes. Oh, they're the shoes. And I go, tell me about those. Where'd you get them? How much were they? Did you find them on sale? This is where I got blah. And then he said, you know what? When I start looking for a pair of shoes, it takes me a year and a half to two years to actually buy them. This is what he said to me. And I go, you are the man I have been looking for all my life. <laughs> you are the shoe God. Like, I was like, unbelievable. And I thought, I thought, Some of us will hunt for shoes. And listen, I understand the wonder and comfort of a a good shoe. Okay? Two years is a little long, though. Okay, but when you consider what's being held out for you in the promise of the resurrection, it deserves a little bit more intense investigation. So not only does life demand it, why Thomas was in the room. I think Christianity invites it. I mean, the way Christianity is set up is very unique from all other religions. It forces investigation, and Jesus is not offended at all by your doubts and cynicism, snarkiness and snottiness. He's not offended by it at all. There's no evidence that Jesus is. In fact, you wonder, you wonder why Thomas showed up a week later. You wonder why Jesus showed up a week later with snarky Thomas in the room. Wouldn't you have said, all right, well, if he's going to have that attitude, I'm staying home. You might have said that if you were Jesus. You're like, Jesus had no problem walking in a room with snot nose in there. No problem. Jesus welcomed it. And Christianity invites it because, different than other religions, it's based on an event. It's based on something that actually happened in history. And if it didn't happen in history, then Christianity, all of it, is meaningless. Anything Jesus said, listen, the Bible itself says of itself, if that historical event didn't happen, none of this matters. That means if it's something that happened in history, you can go investigate it. You can go look at it. It invites your doubts. It invites your investigation. It invites your skepticism. George Ladd, was a great scholar, pointed this out about the uniqueness of the scandal of Christianity because it, it, it's revealed through an event. If what happened in that room didn't happen, the Bible, the wonder of who Jesus is, none of it matters. And he says, Modern man has a means of actually verifying Christianity's truth by historical evidence. You start with your brain. Christianity invites you to think. It forces you to think. And when you do, I'll give you a little bit of a taste of what you're going to have to deal with if you step into the room with your doubts. You're going to look at this close and you're going to say, wow, there were multiple eyewitnesses. There wasn't just some nut in the room who created a story you're going to see why the Gospels cannot possibly be considered legend. They were done too early. They were written too early after the event to be considered legend. There were too many eyewitnesses for it to be considered a legend. There were too many embarrassing facts, things you would have never said if you were trying to create a religion that could somehow last 2,000 years and reach us. There's no way you could have done it with the embarrassing facts that they bring up and deal with. One of them is this. The Jews are the last people on the planet who would have considered any human being God. They're the last people on the planet, even to this day, they are the last people on the planet to see Jesus as God. This was not something you could pull the wool over anybody's eyes. The Greeks didn't want a resurrection because they hated the physical body. The last thing they wanted to hear was that somebody's going to get a physical body again. They couldn't wait to get out of their physical bodies. So what I'm saying is the resurrection didn't pop into anybody's mind. There were always would-be messiahs who were crucified. Nobody said, hey, let's make up a story and say they resurrected. That couldn't have happened unless it did. For the Jews and Greeks to buy it. And then for the disciples to buy it. And for you to think that they're more gullible than you are. C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery. You just think of what would it have taken if you lived in that day, what would it have taken for you to give up everything you held dearly, every conviction you had. You think of your political, social, cultural, and moral convictions that you hold dear and deep. What do you think it would take for you to give those up in a day? One day, give them all up. It would take something profound. And whatever it would take for you to do it, you better believe it would have taken for them to do it. Because they were about to give their life for it. There's no other explanation. And when you investigate it, you will see that. Japanese novelist, Shisaku Endo, said this, if you don't believe in the resurrection, you will be forced to believe that something hit the disciples that was every bit as amazing, maybe different, yet of equal force in its electrifying intensity. For if we try to explain the changed lives of the early Christian, you will will find yourself making leaps of faith as great as if you had believed the resurrection to start with. You get in the room, and you push through those doubts. Now, once you do that, Christianity's not less than rational, but it's more than rational. It's extremely personal, and Thomas teaches us that. When you get in the room... Let's say you get there and you push through the evidence. It's personal, too. So let's look at that. Let's see, well, what happens when you get in the room and you've done the evidence thing, and how, do, how does one come to believe? Well, I think Thomas gets overwhelmed by two astonishing truths that are very unique to Christianity. They're not in any other religion. Okay? And the first one is, Here Thomas shows up, and even though he has doubts, he's still curious. Curious enough to seek, but what he realizes is that even though he thinks he's the one searching for God, it's actually God that's been searching for him. And Thomas realizes that. He looks at Thomas, and he says to him, put your finger here, examine my hands, extend your hand. He says exactly what Thomas said. And if you're Thomas, you're like, wait, wait, wait a minute, who told him that I wanted, to, you know, Okay, that would be your first thought. And it turns out Jesus was listening. All the eight days, Thomas thought he was by himself figuring this out, debating with the disciples. Turns out Jesus has been with him the entire time. He's been listening the whole time, knew exactly where Thomas was, knew his snarkiness and his snottiness. He knew it. And so this is one of those moments that every, everyone who comes to faith in Christ has. When you think you've been seeking him, but all of a sudden it turns out you, you get found by him. All right? Uh, you start out seeking, but you get found. Um, and, when, and when you realize God's sort of intervention in this thing, it becomes, it's one of the things that becomes decisive for your faith. In other words, it overwhelms you. I remember it happening to me. And even today, I can look back and go, I, I can't believe God was chasing me. You know, God has been called the hound of heaven because he hunts. And it's an overwhelming moment when you realize, I would have never found him without him. I'd have never found him without him, even though I thought I was the one searching. If you haven't read um, the Chronicles of Narnia, there's one of the stories In there is called The Horse and His Boy. And in this particular part of the story, this little boy, uh, great character, is named Shasta. And Shasta uh, loses his parents, and he gets raised by a fisherman who's far less than nice. He's on the verge of abusive, overworks him, and even hits him. And Shasta has this desire as a child. I've I got to get out of here. And he's been told about Narnia. Narnia is a place of hope. Narnia is this wonderful place, right? No winter. It's beautiful. He would love to go there. And he knows that there's a king there. There's a gracious and powerful king there by the lion Aslan. So he wants to go. And he has this horse whose name is Bree. And Bree has been there. He's from Narnia. And so he decides to help the boy and the two of them together go on this journey and it is an incredible read. I mean, you are on the edge of your seat see, because this kid encounters more obstacles than you can imagine. And there are sometimes on the, on the road to faith when you think, wow, I have all these doubts. I've tried to search a little bit and you think, God is nowhere to be found. It's like he's not any help at all in me pushing through these doubts and getting there and that's how you feel. That's how this boy felt. He's on his way to Narnia, and he experiences the most incredible things. And you're on the edge of your seat. Almost dies, almost gets eaten by lions, has to spend the night in, amongst the tombs. He's scared, he gets almost eaten by jackals, uh, almost gets captured. There's so many things. And at one moment, he's walking by himself, because he's been separated from a, a group that he's sort of, and he's just down. And at one point, he says, in the fog, I am the most unlucky person in the world. And just about that time, a presence comes up next to him. And it's the lion, it's Aslan. And he feels it, and it's so powerful to him, and he's scared, but but it's so real that he has to speak to it, and he does. And when he does, the voice, this large voice described as the large voice, says to him, I'm so glad you finally spoke to me, because I've been waiting to speak to you. And then, you're going to love this. I mean, it's just so great. Um, so the large voice says to him, Shasta, I don't think you're unfortunate. And uh, Shasta says, don't you think it was bad luck that those lions almost ate me? What on earth do you mean? I just told you. That, uh, or he says, there was only one lion, said the voice. And then Shasta said, what on earth do you mean? You just told me there were, I just told you, there's two lions. They almost ate me. And the boy says, there was only one. And he was swift foot. How do you know? And the boy said, I was the lion. And Shasta gaped with open mouth and said nothing. The voice continued, and he said this, I was the lion who forced you to join with Erebus. Erebus is a little girl that he joins with who's going to Narnia with him. I was the cat, great scene, who comforted you among the houses of the dead. I was the lion who drove the jackals from you as you slept. I was the lion who gave the horses the new strength of fear for the last mile so that you could reach the king in time. And I was the lion, you do not remember, who pushed the boat. Don't you remember? Don't, who pushed the boat in which you lay as a child near death so that it would come to shore and meet a guy sitting there at midnight to receive you. I was there. In every single one of those moments. And this is a truth that when it hits you, it's overwhelming to realize. No matter where I am, how hard it's been to find faith, God has been with you in the entire journey. He's been seeking you, he's heard you, he knows your heart. And this, see, this, this casts a, uh, a unique question on the whole idea of seeking. Because in no other religion are you sought by the God You do all the seeking. You do all the searching. In fact, you're told you can eventually reach it. In Christianity, that's not the case. In Christianity, you're told you can seek, but you will never find until I come alongside you and find you. And that's how C.S. Lewis felt. No matter what you're going through right now, I wonder if if you're capable of looking at your circumstances and saying, I think God might very well be on my trail. C.S. Lewis put it this way. It's one of my favorite quotes. I have it engraved in glass in my office. Continue seeking him with seriousness. Unless he wanted you, you would not be wanting him. Hey, isn't that great? Ah, that's the truth Thomas gets overwhelmed with. And it'll, it'll, it's the personal side that drives doubt out when you realize you have been sought by God. The second thing I think happens is in the same sort of vein um, about the wounds. Because if you're sitting there with Thomas and you see the wounds, I mean, one of the questions that ought to come to our mind is why does he have wounds still? You know, he just kind of came through locked doors. I mean, he's got some sort of supernatural body Uh, so he's got these glorified wounds and you and Thomas is looking at those to the degree it so takes Thomas back that he doesn't even reach out and touch him even though that's what he said he had to do Thomas never reaches his hand out he never touches anything so something happens to Thomas aside from the fact that he realizes God's been hunting him he also realized those wounds he saw them inflicted and for Thomas They were just going to be proof that he's still alive or that he came back to life. But they actually mean much more than that. You know, when you see your Messiah die of those kind of wounds, it takes all the air out of your hope. For three years, you have followed this man willing to give your life for him. And just like all the Messiahs before him, Suffering and pain. Stomp him out. Gone. Now all of a sudden, it turns out that there's another truth and another reality because Jesus is risen from the dead that makes makes something possible you didn't know was possible and makes something accessible you didn't know was accessible because And listen, this is the thing you and I have been longing for all our lives. Please don't tell me that the things that hurt me the most in this world don't matter. And it's only in this moment when Thomas realizes it. Because Jesus is about to essentially say to him, Thomas, the things you thought ruined me actually were my greatest triumph. They were my greatest triumph. My wounds made your salvation possible. My death made this moment possible. I paid the penalty for sin. My wounds are my greatest triumph. And one day, you too, Thomas, will see all the pain and the evil in your life turn to good. And it will make your glory and your joy that much greater. And we all know that experience, that the highs are made better by the lows Listen, this is the ultimate defeat of evil. The ultimate defeat of evil. Not only to do justice to evil, but then to transform it and make something incredibly beautiful out of it. That only God can do. Only God can do that. And where else are you gonna go for that hope? There's only one God who has wounds. There's only one God who has wounds. There's only one God who can identify with you. There's only one God who would say to you, I love you enough to hurt. There's only one God who would do that. And Thomas is feeling it. Jesus didn't show up in the room to, to do na, 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 na to Thomas. Look what I can do. He showed up to say, Thomas, these wounds mean I love you and I can transform pain into something beautiful. That's what he's saying. Now, um, Russian novelist, Uh, Fyodor Dostoevsky he described his doubts as the hell fire of doubt and one day he was standing at a painting, a German painting by by Hans Holbein it's called The Descent From the Cross he's looking at the painting, very graphic picture of Jesus coming off the cross and in that moment, this is what he says in that moment I love this phrase A window was open in reality for me, into the universe. A window was open. I could see past. And he literally said, if God's son suffered like this, there could be redemption. There could be redemption in the world. And then I love Emily Dickinson's story because she was also just weighed down with debt. Or I'm sorry, doubt. (laughs) Not debt, doubt. And she came across The cross, the suffering and the death of Christ. And this is what she wrote after she came to faith. All the other distance he hath traversed first. No new mile remaineth. I absolutely love those lines. It literally means Christ didn't just come part of the way to reach us. If he has sought for us and loved us, he came all the way. There's no extra mile. He came all the way into our pain and our suffering. That's how far he went. There's no new mile. He can't go any farther to reach you than he has gone. And And once Thomas saw that, he it drove out the debt. And then you say, Well, how do you know you believe? Once you see those things and they come upon you and you can't help yourself, how do you know you believe? How do you know you've crossed the line? Well, let me just show you this. A major shift happens in the text because Thomas came in the room with his challenge, but he gets one from Jesus, which is here. Do not continue in your unbelief but believe. That's Jesus' challenge to Thomas. Thomas, you came in here with a challenge for me. I've got one for you. And here's what happens when you know you've come to faith. You let go of your demands and you surrender to his. That's how you know. It's more than rational, it's personal. And here's what happens to Thomas. He lets go of his condition and it turns to confession. And he says, Thomas replied, my Lord and my God. This is the the highest theology in all the gospels. The greatest skeptic provides us with the highest confession. No other individual person calls Jesus God until Thomas, after the death and resurrection. That's how I know. And in that moment when he confesses, here's what happens, here's what happens. Because you might believe a lot of this, but it's never transformed your life. And that's because you haven't crossed that line of, total surrender, where no longer am I the one with the demands, he's the one with the demands. And when you encounter this kind of God with this love and this power, you drop your demands and all of a sudden you want what he wants. You do what he says. You seek his advice. It's not about you anymore. And when it's not about you anymore, you know you've come to faith. And I'll tell you, there's even better news. You don't have to have been there That's why Thomas is the bridge character. You don't have to have been in the room. Thomas is the perfect person to tell us. You didn't have to be there Easter morning to see what Thomas sees. You didn't have to be there to make it possible. Look what he says. Jesus says to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Now that question is suggestive and it's suggestive of this. Thomas, you didn't need to see me for this to be true. I didn't need to show up in the room for you to know this. In fact, Thomas, blessed is every other person who wasn't there Easter morning, hasn't seen, and yet believes. In fact, the tense of this verb is they will believe because I'll track them down. That's the idea. You didn't have to be there. That's the best news for you and I who weren't there. In fact, here's how the chapter closes. Now, Jesus performed many other miracles and signs in the presence of the disciples that are not recorded in this book for you to to think about. But then he says this. But these are recorded. So now, we're talking about everyone post-Easter. These are recorded that you may believe there's enough said here that could bring you to faith. That Jesus really is God, just like Thomas said he was. And that believing, you might have everything I've offered to Thomas, meaning, hope, life after, everything, it's available to you. That's what he's offering. Well, just to give you a little modern picture, I want you to watch a video. This is of a guy who we recently lost in this church. We did his funeral about a little over a week ago. A man, we loved Greatly. I want you to listen to his story because he shot a little video before he passed here's what he said
0: the best way I can start is by starting before I accepted Christ Uh, in summary I was completely and totally self-centered uh was pretty solid drunk I was drunk most evenings by the time uh Sun went down and managed to sober up in time to go to work the next day for too long. Uh, and living my life in a way that was entirely self-centered and uh, just didn't really leave much room for other people. Uh, and that's not a good story for a man with uh, a wife and four children. <clears throat> but that is my story. So. Uh, and that eventually resulted in Maxie and I separating uh, for about a year and a half or two years, longest two years of my life, and hers I guess. Uh, and that changed when our daughter talked us into attending a church with her, uh, and we became members, and then we were eventually baptized in about uh, 2002. We Came to the same decision at the same time that our lives were pointless and meaningless without Christ in them. So we found Hillside Church in 2010. It became our new home. Literally, the first morning we visited. So that gets us up through 2010 and 11, maybe 12, uh, and then life changed in September of 2013. I. uh, Started bleeding from through my bladder, went to the emergency room, and within several several hours, I knew I had advanced kidney cancer. It's, it's a life-changing event, you know. Suddenly, life went from being uh, open-ended to it became very temporal, and uh, that's not all bad. To Put to be in a position where you're uh, not in immediate danger, but you have a very clear picture of what reality is in terms of uh, you're going to die and it's going to be relatively soon. It's not going to be someday. Uh, And that's okay. Uh, We had several experiences where it was made clear to us that we have been um, blessed in the midst of what seemed like the biggest trial that you could face. Uh, We had the opportunity, well, the night that the doctor, the emergency room doctor came in and told me that I had kidney cancer, there was a nurse typing in notes into the computer while all this was going on and when the doctor left, she was still typing and then she stopped and turned around and looked at Maxie and I and said, do you understand what he said? And we said, yes. And she said, you understand that he said you have cancer. I said, yeah, we we understood. She said, well, you're not upset. You're not crying. You're not angry. What is the deal? And I said, well, uh, we both have a strong faith. We know Christ is in charge of this. God's going to take care of it. And uh, we're not worried. Uh, She just turned around and went back to typing out of all of that I guess the things that I'd want to make sure people learned from me from what I'm telling you today is that uh, no matter what you've done or what you've said or how horrible you think you are you're redeemable and Christ can and will do that if you permit it He died for you the grace is free uh, And they, if you if re- remembered nothing from from what I'm saying today, that would be what I'd want you to remember. We, uh, when you get here, it's very easy to look back and, and have regrets. Fortunately, I've put those away. Uh, if you want to know the biggest blessing of, of accepting Christ, is you can, through faith in Him, you can, put those away and let them quit. You can get them to stop affecting your life now. Sometime in the relatively near future, particularly if if you're me, it's relatively near, I'm I'm gonna die. And the great news is I'm not worried about that. I know exactly where I'll be and with whom I'll be. You know, I know the promise is there that I'll be with Him. I'll be with Jesus Christ, so I have no fear.
1: Let me ask you, do you have that kind of faith? Let me ask you this way. Would you like to have that kind of faith? Don't you think that'd be more valuable than what you drive or what you wear on your feet? That alone makes it worth the investigation. Listen to the words of this song, and then I'll close this. would say that's very true of a lot of people in this room. And it may be enough. I think it's worth it. I think it's worth it for you to push through your doubts and show up in the room and investigate those deeper. And then there's others in this room who, if you think about it, you realize you have been being tracked by God. Either through something going on in your life or someone he has put in your life. Maybe that's someone got you here today. But he's tracking you. And you know what you'd do if you feel that? This is what I would do if I were you. I'd say, God, if you're there, if that's you, if that's you, I want it. Take me, if that's you. And because of what you've done for me, I'll call you my Lord and my God. That's what you do. You just, you let him have you. You let him go ahead and pounce on you. You pray that prayer and you pray it over and over again. And he'll come into your heart and do the same thing. You didn't have to be there Easter morning. That's his promise to you. So let me pray for you. Father, anyone in this room feeling that right now, feeling Maybe your, your breath on their back or your powerful uh, movements around them, Lord, that they'll say that, that they'll humble themselves enough to say, God, I feel you in my presence. And if it's you, take me. Be my Lord and my God. That's what I want. I want the hope you gave Thomas. Prayer, Lord, for anyone in this room. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks for watching today's message. We hope it encourages you wherever you're at in your faith. If you enjoyed it, let your friends know. And we'll catch you next time.